Guru Nation. Welcome to episode 495 of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. In this episode, we actually, we combine two interviews. So the first one is me interviewing Dr. Hazen, who was the PI of the study and the sponsor of the study that I was in when I got COVID. So she's the PI and sponsor of uh, the COVID treatment study that I was in, and we give a little update as to my progress and how everything went. Then, so that's the shorter first fourth of this podcast episode. Then we interview her from Latinos in Clinical Research. So it's more of an interview on Dr. Hazen's career, uh, how she manages work-life balance, how she became a PI from a private practice physician, and then how she became a sponsor from having research site experience. So hopefully you find some value here. It's an action-packed episode, lots of stuff here for everybody. Check out the links in the show notes to the CRA Academy, the CRC Academy, the Patreon channel. It's only $5 a month, patreon.com slash dancefera. Uh, if you need help getting studies, text me, 949 415 6256 and with all that being said, enjoy the show. Guru Nation, what you're about to see in the beginning is my interview with Dr. Sabine Hazen. Uh, just giving you an update on my COVID uh, treatment. I was in her study for COVID. And then we have a call to action because she has a virtual trial, several virtual trials for people who are interested in treatment or preventative uh, COVID therapy. And then I was going to keep it separate. But it was such a good interview that I just added to the end of this video from Latinos in Clinical Research. We did a group interview with Dr. Hazen, so it's all about her life, her journey, her business. Uh, it's really good. Uh, I thought it was really good, so I, I wanted to feature it on here just to give you guys some context about her and her history and all of that stuff. But for more content like that, you should go to Latinos in Clinical Research. Dot com and also subscribe to the Latinos in Clinical Research YouTube channel. And with all that being said, here are the two episodes. Hello, Guru Nation. Welcome back to a very special episode. As you can see by my background behind me, I am COVID free, recovered. Uh, I actually got COVID like right around the holidays. And then I joined Dr. Hazen's study uh, because she told me it would be a good idea. So my symptoms weren't that bad. So that's why I was thinking, well, let me not do the study. I don't need it. But then Dr. Azen said, well, you don't want COVID to linger in your gut. And that's what I remember you telling me. And that's really what made me do it. So welcome, Dr. Hazen. Thank you for putting me in your study. Why did I not want COVID to linger in my gut? Because you don't know what the long-term complications of that are. Um, one of the things that we're seeing with uh, COVID is actually that once it goes into your microbiome, it does start creating havoc, right? I mean, it's like one bug goes in there that's not supposed to be there. And eventually it starts a uh, domino effect of other bugs getting altered and then the balance. And then COVID wants to penetrate and sit into your ACE2 receptors, right? And essentially that's, and then you don't know if it's going to stay there on your ACE2 receptors or if you're going to evacuate it. First of all, in my opinion, the sooner you get rid of it from your body, 
from your ACE2 receptors. You don't let it live into your receptors, into your body, whether your blood, your brain cells, your nose, your mouth, your gut, your bowels, the fat, the better it is, right? The faster you get it rid of it, and then you move on with your life. You don't have to quarantine from people. You treat early, you move on, right? The sooner, the, the longer you let it, you know, go on. And I give the analogy of scabies or lice, right? If you've got a couple bugs in your head and you're just gonna get rid of it and do the shampoo and you're gonna treat your whole family, right? Because you don't want to have it become an infestation. And then you have to like go to a place where they remove egg by egg, right? So it's the same thing with COVID. COVID is a virus that replicates. Sooner you get rid of it when you've got a thousand, five thousand copies, the better it is. Why do you want it to go onto having millions of copies in your blood, in your bowels? So to me, you know, I felt more comfortable. No, especially considering you're, you know, so highly needed in my life, Dan. Thank you. I needed you. to make sure you're like alive. Who else yeah. is going to me? <laughs> That's how I knew it was legit because I'm like, all right, well, you know, I need to help Dr. Azen out so she would do what's best for me. I, she has yes. to do what's best for me. Um, yeah, so that really stuck with me. And you're seeing all these stories now in the news about people who have never recovered from COVID. I mean, it's a good amount of people that I'm seeing on Twitter and just reading stories about that never got better a year later. Is this common? Is this more common than what we're led to believe? Well, if your body doesn't fight off the virus, eventually your body should fight off the virus, right? Should, right? However, if your body doesn't and it's lodged somewhere and it started creating havoc in your bowels and your good bacteria that was supposed to be there as your defense system are dropping and dropping, eventually you don't have the immunity that you started off with, right? So you get a beat up, right? This virus, everybody that's had it will tell you, and you probably could attest as well, it's a beat up, right? It's like you've been beaten up and it takes a while to recover. Like it takes a good month. Yeah. It's oh, been yeah. early to recover because it's like, whoa, it really punched me down. And then now I have to re we get myself in shape. I have to retrain. It's like being in bed for a month practically. And then all of a sudden you're asked to run a marathon. Not going to yeah. happen. <laughs> you got to retrain your body, right? So it's the same thing. So imagine if people don't get treated because we don't have an outpatient therapy. Imagine we're a year later and we don't have an outpatient therapy, right? Why? Because the solutions that were thought of first were monoclonal antibodies, remdesivir, IV infusion in a hospital or in a clinic, convalescent plasma needs a nurse. Nobody really thought, except the doctors on the front line, who you've seen thought about, hey, cheap solution, you know, <laughs> let's give colchicine, let's give ivermectin, let's give hydroxychloroquine, let's give, you know, vitamins. Nobody's talked about that. And that should be the first line of defense. We went all the way hmm. to the monoclonal antibodies, convalescent plasma, when we should have started with take an aspirin, take you know a simple gout medication, take an antiparasitic, take ZPAC, take doxycycline, take ivermectin. You know those cheap, safe yeah. solutions. But you know instead we went all the way to 
let's get everybody the most expensive three thousand dollars you know five hundred dollar drug and so not to go down too much of a rabbit hole but yeah i agree with you and not only what you said but worse people who did bring those things up got publicly shamed even yes. like physicians who brought that up got publicly ridiculed yes. and i don't think that's fair i mean whether they're right or wrong research is should be independent of somebody's opinions research should be independent of people's opinion doctors should not be interfered with that take care of their patients remember we went into clinical trials you and i to oversee the clinical research right we don't interfere with patients. We don't buy the doctors, right? We don't bias the doctors to give a therapy. At the end of the day, it's a patient-doctor relationship. The government shouldn't have any place in it. The media shouldn't have any place in it. Should you be getting your information from the media? Absolutely not. <laughs> Where the else doctors, can you get it? <laughs> but, but you know what? But the doctors need to be you have a relationship with your doctor that you've known for years that doctor's role is to educate himself how does that doctor educate himself in the middle of the crisis he calls other doctors what have you seen work what do you think what is china what did i do when this happened i basically called people in china that i knew doctors in china what have you guys been doing i called doctors in italy that were on the forefront in the clinical trials, right? I remember when it happened, you were on a mission. I mean, you were oh, telling was, me a lot about it. I, I only saw like probably 1% of what you were doing. Well, remember we did that video? Yeah, I know. Um, we like literally when I was writing all the protocols. So I got to find out that first of all, vitamin D was working, vitamin C was working, zinc was a protocol, hydroxychloroquine is the thromycin was a protocol. So I submitted quickly those protocols to the FDA. And of course, you know, when you put anything on clinicaltrials.gov, it goes viral because we were number four to have our protocols be approved by the FDA. So everyone around the world saw those protocols, right? Everyone saw hydroxychloroquine. And then all of a sudden, it became political. All of a sudden, it became, you know, uh, science changed from... Hi, Dr. Hazen thought of a protocol and submitted it to clinicaltrials.gov and the FDA. And all of a sudden, why am I hearing President Trump talk about hydroxychloroquine? I don't know, but I certainly didn't want to come out during that, you know, craziness. And so that was one. And then when I saw the craziness of like, there's no way I can even recruit for this trial because that yeah. trial got so bombarded with hate and phone calls and and yeah, people are like how can you give a drug that kills people and i said hydroxychloroquine <laughs> has been around since the 60s and in you fairness know, to you because i was talking to you this whole time you never made any claims that you didn't know all you said was i'm doing the research somebody needs to research this stuff and you started doing a whole bunch of trials i'm only monitoring like three of them you probably have like 30, if not more. Can you talk about some of the trials? Because there are still people that are not going to get vaccinated or can't get vaccinated. Uh, so you have virtual studies going on. Uh, can you talk about a few of them? Like I know you have a prophylaxis one, you have one for healthcare workers, uh, and then you have one for people who already have COVID. So can you talk a little bit about that? And then we'll, we'll let people know how to get in touch with you. Perfect. So 
you know, you know me, I don't just take on one trial. I like to see multiple trials. I like to give my patients options, right? I like to also see the drugs for myself because then I can, you know, feel comfortable that this is a good, you know, between me and my sister, we've done, you know, my sisters, we've done over 300 clinical trials, right? Yeah, yeah. So the one thing that, you know, bothered me, you know, Lydia's done all the vaccine studies, especially yeah. for pediatrics. She's done all the vaccine studies. The fact that neither one of us had had the vaccine studies in our clinical trials or any of my friends, you know, you couldn't make that phone call to say, hey, how are the studies on the vaccine going? I always like to know what are the, before I give my patients, I always like to make that phone call to my colleagues that are in the clinical trial business and say, how did the clinical trials work? How, you know, just for my own confidence, right? Because I'm giving something to a patient that's new and I want to make sure I'm not going to kill them, right? And I want to make sure to, to know what are the side effects to begin with, right? So I'm not, I don't know, I, you know, anybody, none of my friends that are in the clinical trials have done these vaccine studies. So I can't even tell you about side effects or anything on the vaccine studies. I can tell you that I was privileged to, to enroll uh, multiple studies for COVID because I want an outpatient solution. You know, there's a protocol that I took on that is cyclosporin. Um, you know, cyclosporin is a bug. It makes sense that if you're trying to kill a bug, then you would use a bug. Um, I took on ivermectin, doxycycline, zinc. I took on the hydroxychloroquine trials, mostly to see, right? I want to see for myself, is it safe? Is it working? I want my husband to monitor all the halters as a cardiologist. Yep, yep. He actually uh, gave me some advice too, and I was concerned. But like, let's let's not confuse people. You're these are your study. You're not just so I'm a doing PI. My studies, and I'm doing pharmaceutical studies as well. You're doing so, both, but you're so passionate about this. You've authored your own protocol. You're sponsoring your own study. It's not cheap. It's expensive. In about five minutes, we're going to switch and record for Latinos in clinical research because we want to talk about your story. The girls have a lot. You gain a lot of fans over the Latino in clinical research good. episode. But like where if people want to, and really this is going to be researchers watching, it's not so much the general public. So if researchers want to join one of your studies, whether they're trying to prevent getting sick or maybe they just got sick, where do they go? They call my office, 805-339-0549. They go to progenabiome.com. We have a site that says COVID-19 and we have the three protocols in there. And they basically sign in they upload their PCR if they're positive. If they want to be prophylaxed because they're exposed to patients, we have a prophylaxis protocol. So we have a couple of prophylaxis protocols and we have um, a treatment protocol, a couple of treatment protocols. So the ones that are approved uh, by the FDA, one prophylaxis and two uh, treatment that, you know, they should just call and contact us. Um, easy to reach me. People reach me from everywhere, LinkedIn, everywhere. Uh, but I would say early to treat, early to cure. So as soon as you get that PCR positive, call me. Yeah. So you saw how fast I am. Use your fast. And you know what? I only checked myself when my wife started having symptoms and I think I brought it home. So I was sick probably for three days prior to her. So I wasn't like early really, but I felt better. And this is not More advice. Earlier than most. Early, most right? Wait 10 days, two weeks, 
Why do you think it helped me so much? Because I remember texting you like an hour after I took the first dose. I'm like, this is like, I feel like way better. I didn't realize I was sick. I just thought I was cold. I would go outside and now like I was shivering and I thought I was just tired or cold. I had no idea. Like I had COVID. Well, I think it, it probably because you were early um, and, and not as many symptoms, but still sick enough to fatigue, know. Fatigue difference. was like the main thing. But, but it does. I mean, I, it's so funny because I think I had it at some point and I took my own drugs back in March. Remember? Yeah. When we did that, that, and we didn't even have a test back then, but I had this, the symptoms that, you know, the fatigue and the coughing and, and I usually cough for like six months. You know, once I get sick, I cough for six months. It like lingers on in me forever. And I took the drugs and within 24 hours, not even eight hours, my cough stopped. And I said, wow, this is really good stuff. And so that's why I felt confident with it. And then of course I got to see my microbiome um, and I got to see, you know, the bacteria and the microbes wasn't really altered. Back then we didn't, you know, have, you know, COVID, we weren't even like finding COVID. We didn't have any assays. Uh, but then I retested myself and didn't have COVID in the stool. So, you know, I think. Um, mm. I owe you a stool sample uh, still. Oh, owe me a stool sample. Yeah. But the stools tell the story. Listen, right. at the end of the day, yes, you can fight it. Yes, you probably, you had the good immunity. But why would you take a chance if you could just take cheap drugs that are safe and you know, that's what did that's it for so me right. when you said that that's what did it for me because i was like ah, i probably had it for a week the worst might be behind me who knows how long it would have lingered because i didn't realize that i actually felt bad you know i was just like trying to tough it out as soon as i took the first dose an hour later i'm like wow i feel like way better maybe this is a good thing that i did this study so very good very good everybody links underneath to dr hazen the microbiome is going to be super important all of her research is really fundamentally based on the microbiome. It just so happened that COVID came around the time that she started her microbiome research. And so she pivoted to make application for it here, but like progenobiome is all about the microbiome research. I think you're doing a lot of cool stuff there and uh, we're definitely gonna do more follow-ups as well. And links underneath. And now I'm going to stop this recording. So thank you guys for watching. You got to go. We're going to do a group interview right now. So go to Latinos in Clinical Research YouTube channel. We need way more subscribers. It's unacceptable that we don't have the, as many subscribers. We've been doing this for three months. We're going to do a group interview on Dr. Hayes and more of a biography type of thing. But awesome. this one, people have been asking, did you get better? How do you feel? How do you, what's going on? What's going on? Yes, I've been better. Uh, I was, I, f I got back to normal like, probably a month after um, my test came back positive. Like it took me a good month, even with your yeah. treatment to, to get back to semi-normal, maybe another month to get back into like working out normal, like I was before. So thank you, Dr. Hazen, very good PI. Um, and you're sponsoring the whole study, all the protocols yourself. Yeah. So reach out to her to figure out which one's appropriate for you and catch y'all later. Thank you. Thank you. Hey everybody from Latinos in Clinical Research. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, today we are going to be interviewing Dr. Hazen. If you saw our last webinar, uh, you will know that she is amazing. She's an awesome PI, she does research. I'm a massive fan. Judy's a massive fan. Everybody loves her. Um, but you know, yeah, I mean, I want her to give a little bit more insight for what she does. So Dr. Hazen, do you mind giving us a little bit of background? So I'm a gastroenterologist by trade. 
And I started doing clinical trials my first year of fellowship at University of Florida. And essentially, um, I went the clinical, the clinical GI route and then um, was doing 90% GI and 10% research. And then little by little, 16 years ago, kind of went 90% research, 10% GI and started doing a slew of clinical trials that I would never think I would, I would ever do from ankle sprains to pulmonary to cardiac to cholesterol to GI. And then little by little, um, you know, I was known in the world of clinical trials as the, the C. diff doctor. And why? Because people would send me patients with Clostridium difficile. I would put them on a clinical trial, which was very tough to recruit those patients to begin with. And then uh, once, if the clinical trial didn't work, I would do fecal transplant on them. When fecal transplant started opening my eyes to a lot of other things being fixed from it, um, or at least improved, I should say, um, I started questioning, well, what am I doing? What's going on? And then I created a company called Progenobiome with the interest of understanding the microbiome because I felt that we were heading, and I think uh, you've heard me speak with Dan in the past. I said 20 years ago, we were doing antibiotics for everything. Then we went to biologics for everything. And now we're in the fecal material business, right? And so if we're approaching the fecal material business, we better understand what we're doing and understand the microbiome. And so I set myself on a path, realistic or not realistic. I just jumped and decided to open a genetic sequencing lab to write the microbiome and disease encyclopedia, essentially. What microbes are responsible for what disease and what is the imbalance and what's going on there. And over the last two years and a half of doing this and seeing samples of Parkinson's, MS, Alzheimer's, autism, I discovered that there's a power to the microbiome and our microbiome is our immunity. And so when COVID hit, I put on my hat of clinical research and genetic sequencing and GI and realized probably COVID is in the gut because it sits on ACE2 receptors. And therefore, if it's in the gut, then you know, it's a GI problem. And so I better start thinking of it that way and start putting on my hat of how to fabricate a drug or how to create a combination of drugs, much like what we did with H. pylori, Dr. Barodi. I actually associated myself with Dr. Tom Barodi. And I said, Dr. Barodi, we got to fix COVID. And he said, we need a formulation and we need compounds together that we put together. And so, because he was behind the treatment for H. pylori and he was the pioneer of fecal transplant. And so started writing the protocols, three protocols. We put them through the pipeline of the FDA. I have a portal with the FDA, uh, which, you know, having done research for so many years, you get to learn everything, right? And I think also, you know, reading these protocols and learning how to do these protocols, you learn how to become a sponsor eventually. And so that was my path. I discovered, you know, how to do the protocols, how to... Uh, run the protocols, how to write the protocols, how to submit them to a portal, how to do all that. And then eventually became, uh, you know, Topelia, which is housing the three clinical trials that we're doing. So that's it. And as a working mom, I know Judy, Judy, Judy's your newest fan. And we're so inspired. We're all fans. We're all fans of Judy. 
so i know judy judy you had some questions judy specifically yeah. said we need to interview dr hazel yeah, like this is not my idea this is like judy no actually it's it's very fascinating your story because you don't yeah. you don't hear this a lot someone who no. goes to med school clinical trials then is a sponsor and running clinical trials i mean you do it all and you've learned yeah. all those aspects so sure it's actually yeah and then balancing family and everything so i was actually yes. really interested to know exactly how all that came about what, you, what is the um, juice <laughs> yeah, how do you make it happen how do you make it happen <laughs> um you know i think for me so i always say you can only do two things well yeah. Uh, if you do a third thing, it shoots you off balance, right? So if I focus on clinical trials and my practice, that usually goes well, but then, you know, I'm neglecting my children. So then I have to kind of like balance. It's a balancing act, right? Constant balancing act. And I think all women that are in the world, and I see your daughter in the back. I know. I know. I'm going to be on the call. You're juggling, right? You're juggling the call and you have your kid in the back. And, you know, I remember when I started this craziness of, you know, wanting to be, a, I, I wanted to be a doctor and I wanted to understand life, right? So that was my first thing as a human being and as, you know, on the planet. You know, I got married, had kids, and, you know, I had to figure it out. I had to figure out early because I was a GI fellow and my husband was a cardiology fellow. So I had to juggle the calls. We were both on call one in four nights. And we, I had a baby, a brand new baby while I was the only fellow in GI on call. So I was like one on three call and he was one on four. And I had to juggle figuring out the babysitting situation. And I didn't have my parents next to me. I was in Florida, University of Florida. And, you know, I would say to my husband, why is cardiology so much more important than GI? GI is just as important. <laughs> and, you know, really should, why is it dumping on me to find a babysitter, you know? Hmm. And so I learned early how to juggle that. So I had to have a babysitter on call so that when I was on call with my husband, it wouldn't interfere with call and I would still see my job. So it was a juggling act. Um, I always remember in med school, one of my interviews in med school, a woman asked me, what happens if a patient is sick and your child is sick? And I felt that it was an unfair question because I said, why would you ask that for men? I mean, that's so unfair, unfair to ask that for women, right? Yeah. And that situation did happen multiple times, you know, where I have to juggle, but somehow you make it happen and you're handling both fine as long as you only have both things fine right <laughs> but if you're handling you know I'll always remember I was dealing with my daughter had a questionable appendicitis and I had um, a patient that was sick so both were sick at the same time and at the same time somebody else called me and said my kid has rectal bleed and I need you to see them and I said okay wait I can only <laughs> send it to another doctor and I coordinated that that patient so when you learn how to juggle all those things and you manage to to do multiple things and you learn how to run multiple wheels at the same time it's almost like an obsessive compulsive you know disorder but it's like adhd but Organized. having <laughs> but it is adhd but you um you um you learn to use the power of adhd right so you learn how to find tricks to survive, right? If I, if you put me on one thing alone, 
and you say, Sabine, write this book, it'll never get written. But <laughs> if you put me and you say, write this book, but then conduct clinical trials, run your house, run your kids, then it'll get done. <laughs> but if, it's, it's crazy, but this is like my nature. Few people have that ability, few people. I have to say, and I've met a couple people in my life. Dr. Barodi is one of those people. <laughs> that sounds kind of similar. <laughs> you no, know, every time I think I have like 20 things on my plate, he's got 30. Wow. And, you know, he's he's constantly running a busy practice and he's thinking of different products and he's working a cardiac product and a GI. And so you learn, you learn how to juggle all that and, and you know, to the best of your ability. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, you did write the book on it. Let's oh, talk about it. Yes. I need to read the it. Book. Oh, sorry, Judy, you get kids in the that's, room, but let's talk. That's okay. I got, I got the headphones. Okay, on. I got you. I got you. So yeah, you did actually. You literally did do yes. it. That's but awesome. I, had help. I mean, it was like there were there's three authors in there. Shelly, mm. who is my co-author, actually really writes in the book. She helped me put my shit together. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, right. I, mean, like I, did, I had written a book called Let's It's Just Gas uh, way back, like 10 years ago. And I never really got it out. And then when the microbiome came on, I, I changed my focus because I felt like a lot of people that are gassy need to learn about gas and what's causing gas, right? And so it was initially, it's just gas. And then when the microbiome and the clinical trials and everything I started doing, took a different form, that book became, the book became a chapter, it, um, Gas Prices, in the Let's Talk SHIT book. And um, yeah, me and uh, Shelly and Dr. Barodi basically juggled all that and made it happen. That's awesome. Honestly, it's like, that's amazing. I, um, I, I hope it helps a lot of people because, you know, a lot of times people are bloated, they're gassy, they don't necessarily want to go to a GI doctor and then you're told to do gastro a bunch of tests. You know, it's, it's good to remove like the nutrition component that could be the problem or the simple things by just reading the book first and then, you know, going to see your GI to make sure it's not, you know, anything serious. So can you, can you tell us some, this is Latinos in clinical research. You work in a, I wouldn't say predominantly Hispanic community, but Ventura has a good amount of, of uh, Hispanics. What what have you noticed uh, as far as patients, like the differences amongst the patients? From, let, let's compare oh, Caucasian with Hispanics. Yeah, so first of all, they're my favorite population. Uh, and not because I'm on Latino channel, but because, you know, they're family oriented. They love, they have a passion in them. They love life and they question things, uh, but they're also very respectful um, and they're not, they're very modest. And that's what I love about the population. So I, you know, I will treat farmers for like, you know, fruits and vegetables um, faster than I will treat a CEO of a company, for example, because it's just, they're, they're, more family oriented, more compassionate, more, more, less, you know, entitled. And that I like that about that, that population. And also, you know, I'm, I have like some Spanish blood in me. So of course, you've got Spanish family. blood. Let's make you uh, Latino and research. <laughs> <laughs> my family's from Seville. So I have some oh, Seville. Seville. So 
Yes. But my Spanish is not that great yet. So uh, that's me French, too. Yes. My my mom's side actually has family from Seville. Most of my yeah. dad's side is from Mexico. Yeah. So the uh, Pinto was my mother's last name. Ah, okay. There's a street in Seville, Pinto. So that's why I kind of, you know, that's you know, that's my uh that's my people. Those are my people <laughs> away. So cool. and but also would... all my co- all my coordinators are from Mexico and and uh, one's from uh, Argentina. So, you know, it's a different, you know, we're all, I'm not American. I was, I'm a Canadian, but I was born in Morocco. So, and my family's from Spain, Germany, et cetera. So we're all, you know, we're all kids of the planet. I had a, I had a, uh, somebody called my office the other day, my, uh, my house and, and did one of those questionnaires saying, are you um, Democrat or Republican? I'm like, neither. <laughs> are you conservative or liberal? Neither. Are, what's your race? Plan- child of the planet. What's your, uh, you know, they just were trying to, to categorize me into a box. Yeah. Can I, just, you, I don't like being categorized in a box. Can you romance us a bit like you did when my wife and I came over and you gave us that story of we all come from the dirt or something? You said it like you were very eloquent in the way you said or it. Element. Oh, we come from the dirt, from earth. <laughs> so microbes, microbes, you are born from microbes that you inherit from your mother, right? So when you carry your child and you deliver that child, that child gets a portion of your microbes, right? Of the microbes of the mom, right? And then those microbes through life get older and then the imbalance gets created and then the the overgrowth of the bad stuff, we'll say, starts going up and that's the process of aging, right? You start from good stuff to the bad stuff. And then eventually the process of dying is really the body, the bacteria in our gut and in our body start decomposing the body into the earth. So if you think about it, we came from a mother and then that bacteria goes back to the earth, but the bacteria is still alive. It still goes on. So it goes into the planet, it goes into the fruits, the vegetables, the roots, the trees. So it's a beautiful process to to think of it that way, that we're, you know, whatever is, we're just a reservoir for all these microbes. The microbes are leading us right now. COVID is leading us, right? So you have to kind of think of it that way. If that's not motivation, Republican, Democrat, doesn't yeah. matter. You're bacteria, <laughs> and that's it. You're just bacteria. The sooner we think that way, the sooner we'll have peace in this planet. I'm sold. I'm sold. I'm bacteria. And and speaking on that, what recommendations can you give us? Because now I feel like I have to go change all my eating habits or reevaluate everything that I'm doing. So read the book because I don't know if I'm doing it right. If you're healthy and your bowels are fine, you're doing it right, do not change your diet. The mistake people make is they hear somewhere, oh, you need to eat more of this, you need to eat more of that. But guess what? We have different dietary requirements, right? You were born from a mom, I take it it was born in Mexico. Okay, so your diet is the Mexican food, the, you know, you're comfortable with that food. That's your comfort food, right? Once you change your diet and you start eating sushi, Japanese food, mac and cheese, you know, which is not really 
Mexican food, that's when you start getting problems. And inevitably, as a GI doctor for 25 years, you know, patients would come to me and say, you know, I changed my diet and then all of a sudden I'm bloated. Well, why did you do that? Why did you listen to that person? Or my favorite is people will take probiotics, right? Nothing's wrong with them and they're taking probiotics. But probiotics are bacteria. Why are you taking probiotics if your gut is fine? You have to trust your gut. If your gut is healthy and you don't have any gas, you don't have any diarrhea, you don't have any constipation, no blood in the stools, nothing, you're fine, you're eating fine, you have an appetite, leave things alone. If, however, something is, you're feeling bloated, gassy, then there's something off. Your gut tells you. You know, even in autistic children, when you listen to the story, the parents will tell you there's always some GI problem there, but they can't articulate it. So GI symptoms is really, you know, we have to be more in tune with the GI problems. And when you ask people with Crohn's disease, for example, what happened? Why did you get Crohn's? And then you take the history and they'll tell you, well, you know, I was, it started when I was in Holland and I ate blood sausages, right? Mm. And then they tell you, they changed their diet for a bit and it started the cascade of microbes that could have potentially caused Crohn's disease. We don't know, but that's what we're thinking. So, so I think uh, if you're fine, leave it alone. So real quick, what it, so getting back to keeping your diet as is, so long as you're healthy, but what if your diet is a dozen chili dogs a day? <laughs> well, okay, so if your diet is eating 10 chili dogs a day, you probably want to cut that down. You probably have high cholesterol, you're probably overweight so, and all this. But I will tell you, there are some people, like my daughter, for example, We'll eat mac and cheese, nachos, french fries from McDonald's. I mean, I cannot change the diet, no matter what I do, right? But the kid's healthy, right? So I'm not going to change anything and get into a fight with her if she's healthy. She never gets a cold, nothing, right? So you see these people that are like eating that junk diet, and they're fine, right? But if that junk diet is causing you problems, it's causing you diabetes, high cholesterol, etc then probably you want to change. But, you know, if, uh, you know, I see 80-year-old women who eat junk food and who've eaten junk food their whole lives, and they don't have cholesterol, they don't have heart disease. So there's something in those people that are that is sustaining them. I'm not going to change anything because their cholesterol is fine, their blood pressure is fine, even though to my standards and to the standards of the diet of today, this is... This is too much. But think about it, the pyramid of food, you know, that remember when it was like four to five servings of bread, servings of bread, that's too much. We just figured that out, that that was too much, right? So we're constantly figuring out what is the perfect diet. And I think we need to figure out the perfect diet for the individual. And that's that's my suggestion. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> Yes, I know. The <laughs> so one time I go on a call, she wants to ask me all these questions. <laughs> it's perfectly fine. We all have that. So this actually like good applications for progenobiome, right? Because you're studying a lot of this stuff. I mean, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic. Hello from those in the future. Maybe we got out. Okay, maybe not. Who knows? <laughs> but you're also studying like 
what's the diet's effect on the microbiome and you're doing all kinds of stuff i mean it's amazing how many studies you actually have that you yourself are the sponsor for how do you do this how do you how are you able to do all this i met your team um you know it's like a handful of core people but it's still like a lot for just a handful okay so i'm going to tell you something that's probably going to shock you but i haven't made a salary in like two years everything that i put from my research from the research that i do for pharmaceutical companies i dump into my personal research Mm. so all the profit that i make i put into my own personal research so this is what you know this is my legacy in a way this is my giving back um, you know, this is my passion. So, you know, why not? So is the private, is the industry sponsored trials, basically funding, basically your well, a lot of different trial. things, a lot of different things sponsored. So we get, we get, so we created a nonprofit microbiome research foundation. So we get a lot of funding from that. Um, you know, I have a, I have a, a private practice in Malibu of people that, you know, see my vision and that have, sponsored and have put in money into the microbiome. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know you have private practice in Malibu. I want to go to that one. That one sounds fancy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because at the beginning when I started 16 years ago, so it was Malibu Specialty Center. And when I started 16 years ago, um, I was thinking of doing Malibu clinical trials. But then I realized, no, nobody's going to drive to Malibu. to do <laughs> It's such a pain to get there. The monitors wanted to come, and I was uh, very and and they always thought that they were coming to Malibu, clinical <laughs> trials and monitoring. And I would say, no, I'm in Ventura. What a letdown! <laughs> we gotta go to Ventura. <laughs> no, Malibu, there's not that many. You know, Malibu is kind of vacant in a way. I mean, there's a lot of people that have second homes and third homes. You know, the locals, especially after the fires, a lot of the locals, you know, had to relocate because they lost mm-hmm. their homes. So. It's not, um, it's not conducive for clinical trials. <laughs> well, I think and, it's a, oh, sorry. No, um, so I was going to actually ask, so you're doing all this research and you're trying to answer these questions. Well, what are you hoping is the outcome or what do you think is going to be the outcome? Or what do you see based on what you've done so far? So what, that's a very good question. So I typically jump in to solve a, uh, a problem. Uh, for COVID, I jumped in to solve the COVID mystery. How do we fix this? Also to give myself confidence that I was right, um, that this is a treatment that I would do that's safe, um, that I would treat others with. So I think that's the first thing why I do research, to convince myself that this is the right thing to do, right? And that's why I do pharmaceutical trials too, to convince myself that the trial is actually a good thing for patients, right? Because I don't want to be the person that gives a drug and then the patient dies from the drug because I didn't know what happened during the trials. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you do rea- you realize that when you get into the research and you start doing your own vision, your own innovation, you're stepping outside of the line that everybody else is following, right? So everybody follows this treatment line. And then you step away and you're like, you know what, let me find my own treatment while still holding the hand of the FDA and the regulatory boards to make sure that I'm doing something legit and not crazy, right? So that's why we do research. So while you do the research, you discover things, right? So I discovered properties of hydroxychloroquine, for example, testing it, trying it, 
that I didn't realize were properties that could be used for other things. I discovered properties of ivermectin that also didn't realize how the mechanism of action was working, right? So much for, especially in the terms of viruses, because we always knew ivermectin was for parasitic. We didn't really know that it had a capability of being an antiviral. So you discover things as you go into this path, and then that directs the path, right? So the first person that discovered antibiotics, right, directed everybody to start doing antibiotics. The first person that did um, biologics, monoclonal antibodies, directed everybody else, right? We're in the microbiome space. The microbiome space was figured out by GI doctors that were doing fecal transplants, right? So when you achieve a result or a cure for Crohn's disease and you know what's changed with Crohn's disease, then all of a sudden you start going in that direction, you attain cures or improvement, and then you, the pharmaceutical companies follow, right? Or you pay attention to autistic children, pharmaceutical companies follow. So you do something to start a chain reaction for others to follow, to move the train, right? And so that's how I look at my life. I look at my life as I'm driving this fast speed train and people come on board, people leave, people come, people leave, people come, but it's still going fast to understand the microbiome and disease. In the midst of it, some people discover certain things and they take on, some people discover other things and take on another branch. And that's how you kind of like keep moving forward, but yet bring on people that you plant a seed and then they take off on their own way with their own research. And that's what I like to be. I like to be that driver of the train that has a vision and that hopefully brings on people to see my vision and start looking and then taking off. And, and we've done that. I mean, we've done that with autism. We have the first fecal transplant uh, protocol for autism. And it's great because it's brought in a bunch of doctors that are now interested in looking in autism. Um, the first case that I did fecal transplant with Alzheimer's, I noticed that when I did fecal transplant, I improved the patient's memory. And he could see, he could remember his daughter's birthday. So of course that brought on Dr. Jordan to work with me, Dr. K from uh, San Francisco to work with me and say, wait a minute, how did you do that? And can we explore looking at that, you know? And then Dr. Sasha from UCLA with anxiety, you know, we started looking. So people come on board and they, they figure out their way to develop things, but it starts with an ignition, right? It starts with that train starting, right? Because, and I don't have all the answers, but I'm a good, I'm a good driver. Well, I, actually my kids will say I'm a bad driver, but I'm a driver. And if you drive the train the right way and you don't, you don't focus on the negative and what people say or do or whatever, and you just continue focusing on what you're doing, you will get answers. And so far we've gotten some amazing answers that got a following and that developed the biome squad with all these doctors that do fecal transplant. You know, they, they joined because they saw I was doing something different, right? And that's what doctors want, right? They want to see some innovations because otherwise it's boring to just keep giving the same drugs over. Right. And listen, ultimately we have not reached many cures in medicine. Wouldn't it be nice to reach cures? Hepatitis C we cured with Arvoni. Wouldn't it be nice if the future was 
more cures, more healing, you know, less mental health, less diseases, less chronic problems. That would be so much better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And can you tell, you know, can you talk more about the fecal transplant? What exactly is that? Yeah, like who, what kind, what kind of patient would get it? The, Does, book. the, the book. book. I need to get the book. book. <laughs> I've okay. always felt like the movement of feces from a healthy donor into another to restore the balance of bacteria in the recipient's gut. I've only read one page of this book so far, but I'm totally going to read that. it. I'm going to read it, Dr. Hazen. I always felt like the neuro... So what we've discovered from fecal transplant is if you take healthy stools, let's say you have a disease. Well, right now it's approved for C. diff. Let's say you have C. diff, okay? And clinical trials didn't work and there's no medication in the pharmacy that works. You would come to me for fecal transplant. And I would probably take your daughter as the donor and make sure that her stools is perfect and I would transplant it into your colon and it would fix your seed. And it's the success rate is 92 to 99% success. So the risk, the risk is, uh, you know, that the person accidentally uses or maybe unknowingly uses uh, uh, fecal matter that's not healthy, right? Is that the main, Correct. the major so that's risk? Why you have a, so there's actually a whole um, lab sheet of blood work we do for testing uh, for fecal transplant. So it's pretty intense. It's not something that, oh, well, let's just take your daughter's stools and make sure, you know, that and give it to her. You actually have to do a whole bunch of blood work and stool studies and everything. And the FDA has required three more stool studies. And now with COVID, we got to make sure that COVID is not in their stools. So they require us to test the patient. Mm -hmm. So you know, with this stuff and with CRISPR, I'm sure you're familiar with CRISPR. <laughs> yes, I mean, yeah. yes. you know, are we entering like a new decade of hopefully innovation in this industry? Because these are things like two things you haven't really heard about gene therapy yeah. and microbiome uh, <laughs> the last decade. So what do you we're, like? Are you optimistic? Entering, I, I'm hoping we're entering a world of precision medicine. I'm hoping we're entering a world where we want to attain cures rather than just palliate. I'm hoping we're entering a world of using the technology, but using it wisely to achieve those cures and not using it to create chaos and destroy, et cetera. So, you know, with every new technology, there's always, you know, the good, and then there's people use it for something else. So, you know, yes, we can use that for, improving lives but that same technology can can create you know chaos i mean we've seen with you know laboratories that are playing with bats you know should we be playing with bats you know i mean we wouldn't be in this problem right now if somebody if there was i think the same way that we have ichgcp guidelines there should be laboratory guidelines worldwide that monitor and look at the ethics of doing and, and oversight a little bit more of doing laboratory experiments like that, because the problem is if it did come from the lab in Wuhan, for example, the virus, um, you know, and someone played with changing or playing with viruses, it can be dangerous and it can be deadly. So I hope we're not going into that path of, um, I hope that the studies and the research is done ethically and that somebody's looking carefully. What is 
Because with the new technology, that could be destruction of you. The yeah. same way you can improve humanity, you can also destroy humanity. And so that's why our job is so important in the clinical trial world. It's not only to do these studies for pharmaceutical companies, but make sure that there's safety above and beyond. If a drug is causing a side effect or a problem, the patient needs to know about that. And that's why our job, that's why I stay in the trenches, even though I'm a sponsor now, you know, I stay in the trenches of doing clinical research because somebody needs to be vigilant about these studies. And I hope, you know, you guys are, you know, vigilant. And I know you guys, I know Dan <laughs> is, but it's so important. You, Judy, you've got to take a field trip with me and Chris next time to Ventura. Yes, uh, definitely. Let me know. know. <laughs> um, and I, no, what, what, what phases of clinical trials do you, you run? Is it like anywhere it from phase one all the way to, end, to phase oh, okay. two? Wow. Yeah. I think that's awesome. We've it's... done some animal studies as well. So, yeah. Wow. I bet you didn't know that, Dan. <laughs> uh, I did not, but I was going to ask one more question because I know, unless you guys want to keep going. So, and you can say yourself and these three authors, Barodi, Ellsworth, who's like the leaders right now, like five people or companies, you can say progenobiome, uh, in the microbiome space right now, like in your opinion? Uh, okay, so in the microbiome space right now, there's three company in the development of microbiome products. Like what you think's promising. I'm asking selfishly as an investor, you know, publicly traded <laughs> or not. Just I, I just want to know. Give my opinion. I wouldn't even give my opinion. So okay. So I'm gonna zip it there. All right, all right. So basically <laughs> you three uh, you know, I don't believe in I I don't do anything with to do with the stock market. I've never bought a stock. All right, that's the wrong way to go about it. Who who's 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 innovative? in the space you can say yourself you it's okay own. that's it I'm okay it's a I hear you. revolution respect respect <laughs> you wrote the book on it i wrote the book i think i wrote the book to say you know leading the path we're leading like it, it the right way we're not going to lead it with selling you a bunch of bs we're going to lead it with telling you right. the way it is. and that's why i'm doing it with the fda that's why i'm doing it with regulatory boards because I'm not going to come out and say, this probiotic cures this disease. Right. I'm not, unless I have real data that is published, seen by the peer review process. And once they say all my, you know, but before I published this, by the way, I sent it to 15 of my colleagues that are like academic doctors in GI. And I said, what do you think? And they all said, wow, this is pretty good. Put it out. There were very few corrections, like I think a couple, not much. So that was my peer review process. And then when I saw that, um, I said, okay, I guess if my colleagues think that it's good, then it's good, that's it. But that's what the peer review process is called, right? That you call your friends and you say, hey, I discovered this, what do you think? And then they tell you, either you're crazy or no, don't put it out. Or they'll criticize, I mean, there's, Medicine is rough, especially in research. You come out with an idea and you present it to your peers and they will tell you straight up. There's no, there's, they'll say it's anecdotal. Forget it. The, don't, there's no data. Do this, do that. And then you have to reinvent the, the experiment in a way to show them and convince them that the data is real. So it's tough. 
<laughs> well, that's not easy. I, honestly, it's super inspiring. Seriously, it's just um, I think that that's awesome. Not just that you're doing everything, but you're you said you're leading the way. But I've always thought that like in the neuroscience sector as well as the gut, because it's you know gut brain relationship. I always I've always felt that those two are going to be the lead of just in general, like for the future. And even now, obviously, right, but most definitely for the future. And so it's pretty awesome to have gotten the opportunity to speak to you. And hopefully one of these days when I go visit everybody in Cali, because I'm the only person in Texas, um, you know, maybe we could go see you as well. That would be awesome to meet you in person. Absolutely. We'll take a field trip. Yes. Yeah. Bring them on. Everyone. Or all of y'all come to Texas. I don't know. I, I think Texas is probably a little better now. Who knows? <laughs> uh, I, think pharma, I think pharma trained me. I mean, won't, don't you think, Dan? I think working in the pharmaceutical and clinical trials probably helped me to get to this level, right? Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think it's possible for you to do progenobiome without your years, like decade in clinical research and in, in industry sponsored research because you knew, like, you learned. Uh, the process. And I think a lot of doctors who are scientifically inclined and not entrepreneurially inclined, try to skip that. And they find that it's a lot harder than they thought. So you you actually know what you're doing, you approach it from a pragmatic standpoint where, hey, I've been a private practice, now I'm doing industry sponsored trials, now I could do my own trials. Why not? But what people don't see is the decades it took, you didn't just decide last year to do this. No, I tell you, it takes a lot of training. And it takes being involved, like really, because I think a lot of PIs don't get involved in clinical trials. They just take these studies, they sign the document, they don't overlook. You know, I surprisingly, and I tell this to pharmaceutical companies, you know, I take on the study, but I actually read the protocol. And while you read the protocol, you read the but, protocol? What a concept. <laughs> you know, what a concept. <laughs> I read the protocol and it taught me how to write a protocol, right? Because when you read the protocol, you learn how to write. Ah, so that's when, the lesson there. You got to have an internal driving force uh, yeah. in order to get through the nitty gritty. Because who likes reading protocols? That's not theirs. Well, especially let's say I do an Alzheimer's study, right? So I had done an Alzheimer's study. So I know what the inclusion exclusion were to look for in Alzheimer's. I knew what questionnaires to use in my protocol and what the endpoints should be. So I think all that is the training you get when you do clinical trials. And that's why the importance of not just sticking to your research uh, for, to your specialty as a PI, but also branching out. Because when you branch out and you do clinical trials on ankle sprains or asthma or COPD, you learn. You learn about those diseases. I did a flu study. Um, I did a couple of flu studies. Um, did I do it with you? One of, one of them was a Korean study. No, I didn't. No. So I did a Korean study, which was, um, you know, for an antiviral years ago. And I had the protocol and it, it was easier for me to write a protocol knowing what I had read before. So. There you go. The multiple levels of physician and, on, and opportunities in clinical research. Uh, they're just endless. I mean, yeah, I think you're, you're um, a great example of the potential that, that physicians can have if they get curious about clinical research. So thanks and for I, coming on. Any other yeah, questions? I, sure. We're all like your fans now. After yeah, I, you I, appeared yeah. on our webinar, everybody's fan. But I, honestly, I'm a fan of everyone on here. Ashley, Judy, Chris, Monica. 
Um, but yeah, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much. This is awesome. You know what? I do have one question. So how would uh, sites like mine, if they're interested in working on a study that you have going on, how do we get um, in contact with you or do you have somewhere? You call me. You tell Dan to connect with me and then we'll put you on. Do you and take, you do, you, yeah. Do you take internships like part-time? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we yeah, hooked her up with uh, three CRA Academy interns. Carlos said they're actually were helpful. Yes. Awesome. Do you take like contract work on the side? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm oh, still no. working full time. <laughs> I mean, this would be awesome. Um, I actually like the, the ability to teach interns and to train people and to show them how to then, uh, you know, it's helpful for both. Mm -hmm. You learn and I learn and, and you help me. So it's perfect. But uh, Dan, the future also is, by the way, not only microbiome, but figuring out all the, the properties our bodies have to heal ourselves, right? Exosomes with your dad. Yeah, so, well, no, not my dad. That's Dr. Hoffman. But yeah, my dad's oh, like Dr. his, Hoffman, his yeah. friend. Yeah, my dad's psychiatry. He's really, he sent you some articles. He's like nerds out on this stuff. He actually bought your book without knowing that oh, I knew yeah. you. And then later he's like, oh yeah, that's the same Dr. Hazen. Well, we're going to be doing an anxiety study with the microbiome. Oh, so, wow. And OCD. that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So, so what the, the trick with this, with the microbiome is that you start analyzing samples and you categorize them. So in other words, some people are carnivores, some people are vegetarian. So we have all that information. So we can look at, you know, um, carnivores. We could look at vegetarian. As we accumulate samples, let's say we're looking at patients with Parkinson's. But then at the same time, the Parkinson patient is also a carnivore or on probiotics. So we get to analyze, look at all these samples we've done, and we stratify them. And that's the beauty of it. It's not like I'm doing research on carnivores versus vegetarian. I'm looking at my people that I've tested, and then I'm zoning, zooming in on what's different about them. That's or awesome. probiotics X versus probiotics B. So that's important. Well, I'm pretty sure you do the anxiety one. That's going to probably get so much headline, especially we nowadays. We have a lot of patients. We've seen some things. So we'll see. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Well, this thank really you. Great. We all caught the Hazen bug. Now, yes, now we're we like super fans. Uh, and hopefully everybody watching connects with Dr. Hazen, Latinos in Clinical Research. Are you going to have a webinar soon? By any chance? Webinar, webinar. Well, like, uh, like uh, oh, Dr. Hazen. Uh, yes, so tomorrow, uh, Saturday, register to www.malibuspecialty. No, Malibu. Malibu Microbiome Meeting. Meeting.com. And yes. you put the code MMM21, and that'll get you a free ticket. Register. Wow. Amazing. Free ticket for the Latinos in clinical research audience and the clinical control guru. I'll put this on both channels and we're going to get a, like, a lot of people in there. Yes. Um, I'll put the links underneath. Because it, it's a great meeting. You'll hear about fecal transplant on Parkinson's, fecal transplant on chronic UTI. Um, what is fecal transplant? The risk, the benefits, the microbiome, COVID-19 in the stools, autism, fecal transplant and autism. Great, great meeting. So, and you get to ask questions to the leaders and the people that do this kind of stuff. Awesome. We'll do it. And Judy, Judy's got a future PI right there in her Ooh. lap. So <laughs> let's see how this so works cute. out, guys.
MalibuMicrobiomeeting.com. Chris, anything else? Anything else you guys have to say as we uh, uh, end this? No, it was great. Thank you, Dr. Hazen. Thank you, guys. Thank you, everyone, for watching, listening, and we'll catch you all later. Bye-bye.